today. I want to thank uh, Charles Mickey for filling in with like 30 minutes notice. I called Charles at 8.30 on uh, Sunday morning and said I've just been asked to, to, to a meeting that, that is a fairly important meeting that I really need to go to that cannot be rescheduled. And, and the meeting's at 11. And I tried to get him to move the meeting to 12.10 or to 10.40 or to anything that would allow me to be here. And I could not get the meeting moved. So uh, uh, my apologies uh, for not being here and my thanks to Charles Mickey because I understand he did a wonderful job and I'm most appreciative. Um, okay, <clears throat> biblical literacy. We're at about 70% strength this morning. We don't have our normal contingency of people. But for the last three years, I met Reinhardt and some other folks that have just started the class in the last month or so. Um, it's kind of got me a little bit uh, curious here. We started biblical literacy three years ago and our goal was to become biblically literate and, and basically start with Genesis and go through Revelation and ask ourselves, where'd the book come from? Who wrote each book? Who decided it was in the Bible? What are the major stories in each book? How have they played through history? What have the, the books done? And we've made it through three years and we have finished the Bible and we're gonna wrap it up with the question and answer section. So the first thing I wanna do is say to everybody in here, thank you for coming to this class because you have made this class something special for me by being here. So I'm very appreciative of you. Next thing I wanna do is quiz you for a minute. How many of you made it through the whole New Testament portion of this class? That's, that's incredible. How many of you, if any, actually started this class with us in the Old Testament? Wow. I may never be able to teach Bible again with y'all. You've got everything I know. Um, no. I am so excited about church history. Uh, I have, uh, I think I told you, written the first lesson. Um, I'm polishing it and buffing it. And it, it is so thrilling to me. To, to, we're going to answer questions. Like I was thinking this morning, Christmas. You know, there is a big fuss right now about do you say Merry Christmas? Do you say Happy Holidays? I don't even understand why that fuss is out there. Christmas, we're going to talk about when did the church first start celebrating Christmas? Because you don't read about it in the scripture. You know, um, holidays, that's from the, the Anglo-Saxon words for holy days. It's the idea that there are a number of holy days throughout uh, this season. And, and uh, you know, wh where did all of that come from? When did we start doing that? We're going to have so much fun. We're going to learn so many things and plug in so much. Meanwhile, Howard, where's Howard? There you are. Used to be my friend. <laughs> I don't know what kind of stunts he did in high school, but let me tell you what he did in here to us. He comes up to me and he says, hey, Lanier, toward the end of the class, why don't you, if you have some extra time, do kind of a question answer thing? I said, sure, I think that's a great idea. And, and let me tell you, that's what we're here to do. And y'all wrote questions and nobody gave me any lob pitches. I wanted some easy questions like, what are the names of the four gospels again? But nobody was going to give me any lob pitches. We have a bunch of Roger Clemens, Nolan Ryan fastballs that y'all sent me. So I'm going to answer the questions that I've been given. 
but I want to warn you right now that I'm not going to be dogmatic about a lot of this stuff. Okay? There are things worth fighting over, but the questions y'all have asked me by and large are not things where I'm going to start throwing punches because none of us, none of us are really Muhammad Ali on this stuff. I, um, can I digress for a minute? I mean, this is just family, right? Um, I'm, I'm, I, I think most of you know I'm in the middle of a huge fight with a major pharmaceutical company. And I, the, 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 um, the general counsel for the pharmaceutical company is a fellow named Ken Frazier. And I had an opportunity to, to be on uh, CNBC a few times over this mess. And that's a, kind of a business TV network. And I was on a show called Squawk Box. And I've gotten to know those guys. I've been on uh, a number of times. And, and uh, they're actually kind of buddies of mine. We get along pretty well. And they bring out the childish nature in me sometimes, which probably isn't good when you're on international TV. Um, but it happens. And so I was on there, and they said to me, they said, you know, we've been trying to get Ken Frazier to come on opposite you, and he won't. Ken Frazier will just appear by videotape if you're going to be on the show. And uh, I told him. I said, yeah. I said, I, I could quote Muhammad Ali here. They said, why? I said, I want Frazier. I want Frazier. <laughs> um, I'm not sure I'll ever get on the show again. But none of us are Muhammad Ali or, or smoking Joe Frazier, I guess it's in this picture. Um, uh, none of us, uh, I, I mean, it, I'm not the heavyweight champion of the world when it comes to answering these questions, and I question whether or not anybody is. So we could put on gloves and get real dogmatic about it, but I don't think <laughs> it's in our best interest to do it. Okay? Question number one. Matthew 27, 45 to 46 states, quote, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land about the ninth hour. Jesus cried out, which would be about three o'clock. Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knew his purpose and what he was to endure and what would happen when he accepted our sins. Why did he make that statement? Oh, if you want a lesson, Mark's got them. You can raise your hand, he'll walk down and give them to you. You might miss the first question, but you can pick back up on the second. Um, I don't see any hands, Mark, so if you want them, you can grab them on the way out. Uh, Jesus knew his purpose. Why would Jesus on the cross cry out, in Aramaic, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, if Jesus knew? Well, I think to answer this question, we need to do a couple of things. I think, first of all, it's very helpful for us to remember Jesus for who he was on earth. Jesus is fully human, as well as fully divine. And we don't really have a good, clear grasp of how those two intertwine together. How can someone with the limitations of a finite human being and a finite human brain also have full divinity with its unlimited, infinite awareness and knowledge? 
The Bible doesn't explain that to us. When we go through church history, we'll see in the three and four hundreds how church fathers, as we call them, wrestled over this. This was a huge issue in the church. How can Jesus be fully human and fully divine? How can Jesus be fully human and be perfect? And is the divinity something that just came into Jesus at some point in time? Or was it inherent in his DNA, as we would say? They didn't know DNA back then. We don't have a real good answer to this. And dogmatism on this point does lead to bloody eyes and bloody mouths. But I will tell you a few things that Scripture seems to indicate. Do you remember Jesus later in his life, he's talking about his second coming. And he says, I don't know when it's going to be. You don't know when it's going to be. Only my Father who's in heaven knows the day. That gives me an indication that there were limitations on Jesus' knowledge. Jesus, fully divine and fully man, obviously gave up some degree of knowledge because there were things God knew that he did not. Now, what did Jesus know about the full ramifications of why he was dying? I think Jesus had a real clear understanding he was taking on the sins of the world. There's no doubt in my mind. I think Jesus clearly understood that God was punishing mankind for their sin in Jesus Christ. That's the whole story of Gethsemane when Jesus is there. Jesus goes to Gethsemane and the prayer he has in the garden is, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. What is the cup? The cup is an Old Testament reference. Not only Old Testament, it's used symbolically in the book of Revelation as well. The cup of God's wrath. But it's an Old Testament symbol for God's wrath that's going to be poured out on mankind. I have done things in my life, I regret to say. Probably not as bad as Howard. I mean, everybody knows how bad he was in high school, but... I have done things in my life and I will do things in the future that deserve the wrath of God. Oh, I can candy coat it. I can try and pretend it's not there. But it is. But the wrath of God is not poured out on me. Instead, Jesus Christ took my sins and the cup of God's divine wrath was going to be poured on Jesus. Now Jesus' prayer, let this cup pass from me. I do not believe to be a prayer that says, God, if possible, don't make me die. I'd rather live and be a carpenter and an itinerant preacher for another 30 years and die of pneumonia. I don't think that was the prayer at all. I think Jesus did not have a full understanding of what would happen to him beyond the resurrection. He clearly knew the resurrection would come. He specifically prophesied. He said, consider the prophecy of Jonah, one that applies to me. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. And the resurrection will be a sign. But what all would happen with that? When the cup of wrath was poured out on him, I don't think he knew. I think his prayer, let this cup pass from me, was a prayer that God would restore him fully to who he was in divinity. But even that, God, Jesus was willing to set aside if that was God's will. 
in order to save you and me. So, does the cup pass from Jesus? Yes. Revelation 14.10 is the passage I was talking to you about that says, He too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into his cup of wrath. The cup of wrath, the wine of God's fury, was poured on Jesus. Jesus suffers the, the, the separation and anxiety from God that we should suffer. I believe... And there is a split among scholars on this stuff, but the ones I sign up, line up with believe that when Jesus hung on the cross, the, 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 the fruit of our sin is not just dying, a physical death of torment. The fruit of our sin is separation and alienation from God. And there's darkness as God turns his back on Jesus because Jesus bears our sin. And that's the real price of our sin he bore. The cup of God's anger, the wrath of a wine of divine wrath on sin was borne by Jesus Christ on the cross. To an extent we don't understand, to a, a level we cannot fathom. And in the midst of this, does the cup pass? He too will drink the wine of God's fury. Yes, it passes, but in the process, Jesus on the cross is crying out, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? The why there is Hebrew. Lama, uh, lama is the word, Hebrew word for why. And, and la in Hebrew, just la, like la 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 la. La, uh -huh. la means two. Um, if I want to go to Ray, I'd go la Ray. If I want to go to Sandy, I'd go la Sandy. Okay. La is two. If I want to go to Bob, that'd be La Bob. <laughs> if his name was Bamba, it'd be La Bamba. Um, la means two. Now the Hebrew word ma, this is true in Aramaic as well, which Jesus is speaking. Ma means what? Someone says ma, they're not talking just about your mother. They might just be saying, what? Which may be why my mom would never let us call her Ma growing up. I don't know. She didn't like Ma. Ma was not allowed in our house. So Ma means what? When Jesus says La Ma, we translate it why, and why is an okay translation. In fact, it's a very valid translation. But, but it's not why always in the sense of, what is the rational reason for this? It means it's almost an exclamation. Oh, to what have you, for, you know, to what have you forsaken me? You know, is this what it's to? Is this what this is about? You know, it's a cry of, of expression. This was not Jesus with a rational question to God, seeking a rational explanation on the cross. This is Jesus who is separated from God, who is exclaiming, to what have you, you know, what, what is this? What is going on here? What is this? For the first time in the history, well, no, there is no history. For the first time in the eternity of God, there is separation within the Godhead. Okay? There is a, an awareness of sin that there had never really been. And it's very profound and it's very mystical and I can't understand the depths of it. But I think that's very plausible. Now let me offer you another explanation. And this, I believe both of these to be valid explanations and true. 
you could say, I don't buy that, and it won't affect me at all, and it won't offend me, and, and I'm fine with that. You can say, I only like the second one. I didn't like Lanier's first one. Doesn't bother me either. But the second one can be independent of the first, or they can both be true. I happen to think they're both true. Here's the second explanation. Psalm 22 is a psalm that talks about Jesus. It's called a messianic psalm. Psalm 22 starts out with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is quoting scripture as he's hanging on the cross. Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the groanings of my, the words of my groaning? My God, I cry out by day, you don't answer. By night, I'm, I'm not silent. This is Jesus clearly saying he's abandoned on the cross and he's alone. And he quotes from a psalm that very clearly was written in a prophetic sense about Jesus. This is a psalm where he says, I'm a worm and not a man. I'm scorned by men, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. That's the way they were mocking him. And that is the way they mocked Jesus. He says, from birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you've been my God. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. My strength is dried up. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Remember Jesus, nothing to drink. Dogs have surrounded me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They didn't break his legs like they do others. People stare and gloat at me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. And it goes on and on. And it ends with victory. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. It is finished. And so I think clearly Jesus is calling out this 22nd Psalm to make sure people didn't lose track of its messianic implications. So those are my suggested answers to that one. Number two. 2 Timothy 3.16 states, quote, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul must have been referring to the Scriptures at the time, which would have been the Law and Prophets. So why do so many people use this Scripture and apply it to the New Testament as well? That's a good question. Um, I would answer this question by first asking you something. We've got a Bible, and here's my question for you. What is Scripture? What, what, what is Scripture? Well, we could go to Paul's writing in 2 Timothy. Paul uses the word for Scripture, translated Scripture, graphē in the Greek, graphē. And graphe typically in the Bible and other places means holy writings. It can just mean writings, but typically in, in this form is used. It's a holy writing. Holy meaning set apart, different. Okay? So it's different than your normal writing. Scripture is something that's holy and set apart by God. 
So if that is scripture, then I'd ask you this. What are the holy writings? Paul says that the holy writings, all scripture, all holy writings are inspired by God. That's theopneumatos in the Greek. God breathed, literally. Infused with the presence of God like a breath. Okay? All scripture is God-breathed or inspired by God and profitable for teaching, correcting, doctrine, reproving. Now, what is scripture? What are these holy writings? Well, I would suggest to you scripture are writings that God has, has breathed His Spirit into. And we know that to be the Old Testament because clearly that is what Paul is most directly referencing. But God did not quit breathing His Spirit into writings then. We have what we call the New Testament. And as we go through church history, you'll see how the church fathers put this together. And the test for the church fathers was what writings are Scripture? What writings are holy writings that are inspired by God? It doesn't make it in the book unless it is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and for doctrine and for correcting. And you may say, but is it fair to do that? Maybe God quit inspiring Scripture when He, he uh, uh, ended the Old Testament. Well, I think it is fair to do it. Second uh, Peter, which is one of the last books written, um, save some of the writings of John and maybe the book of Hebrews. Second Peter has a, has a passage that's pretty good on this. Second Peter 3. He says, um, uh, starting with uh, verse 15, Bear in mind our Lord's patience means salvation. Now listen to this. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. Paul writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. I love this next passage. Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand. This is Peter. I can relate, Brother Peter. Paul's letter contains some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable stable people distort as they do the other scriptures, the other holy writings, to their own destruction. You see, for Peter, the writings of Paul were scripture. So, all scriptures inspired by God, why do some people use that of the New Testament? Well, I think most directly Paul's writing about the Old Testament, and I think that's accurate. But I believe the New Testament to be scripture. I believe it to be holy writings, divinely inspired by God. So they would no less be profitable for the same things that God's other holy writings were profitable for. So it's not unfair to take the passage and use it for all Scripture, though we do need to understand directly it was written for the Old Testament. Does that make any sense? I don't know. Okay. Question number three. Matthew 16, 17 through 19 states, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Now let me tell you what's happened. Let's make this in context. 
Jesus uh, uh, says, who do you say that I am? Well, first he says, who does others say that I am? Oh, some think you're Elijah, some think you're John the Baptist, some think you're, you know, the prophets, lots of possibilities. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Lord Christ, the Son of God. And then Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, which is Peter, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then the question. Some people view Peter as the first pope and that the church is built upon Peter based upon what we read in Matthew 16 and 18. What do you think? Um, well, I don't agree, obviously, or I'd be at the Catholic Church right now. Okay? Um, I have a lot of dear friends who disagree with me. We're going to look in church history at how this unfolds, and it'll be very interesting for us to go back. In the church history class, here's my pledge to you. My pledge to you is I will try very hard in what I write and in what I say not to stand up here and give you merely opinions and conjecture without pointing out this is an opinion and a conjecture. My plan is to give you the original materials as well. So if I tell you something, you can go back and read it for yourself because I, I, it doesn't do any good to stand up here and make stuff up or just tell you things other people have made up. I, I, that's the lawyer in me that's a real cynic when people stand up and say stuff. I'd just as soon like to go back and see the original source. So I'm going to try and provide you that material as we go along. But let's, let's look at this passage and let me tell you why I land on it the way I do. First, let's understand the thrust of the story. This is a famous painting of Jesus handing the keys to Peter. Now, he didn't physically hand Peter some keys there, but it's meant to convey the story. As we go through church history, we'll see a lot of paintings. And one thing I'm really excited about doing is church history is also art history for Western civilization. For decades, no, for centuries, most people couldn't read. And so it was through pictures that we find in churches and other places that stories were taught and the Bible was taught. So this is a picture that was useful for teaching the story that we're looking at. Jesus saying to Peter, um, you know, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This wasn't revealed to you, and I tell you the truth. You are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. I'm going to give you the keys. And whatever you bind will be bound, whatever you loose will be loosed. But you get the keys to the kingdom. Okay? The thrust of this story is that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the thrust of the story. The thrust of the story is that Jesus is the Son of God. If we, I, Jesus started the whole story out saying, who do men say that I am? Because what Matthew's writing there is something that's compelling us to understand Jesus is Messiah, Son of God. Not just because He got resurrected. He was Messiah, Son of God before He ever died. So, that's the thrust of the story. Now, what does it mean then? 
the P keys are given to Peter. Whatever Peter opens is going to open. What he locks is going to lock. I believe the clearest indication of this is that it was Peter who would be unlocking and opening the doors to the church. And Peter does it in Acts chapter 2. The church is... is uh, 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 we read church history first. Our first church history book is Acts. And in Acts, we read about Jesus ascending up into heaven. And the apostles, quite frankly, don't know what to do. They're thinking there ought to be 12 of them. Judas went and hung himself. They're down to 11. So the first thing they start doing is they start trying to figure out who's going to take his place. Bob and Kelly and I were in Atlantic City this week. So gambling is fresh in our mind. Now we weren't there for gambling. Well, actually some would say what we do for a living is gambling. Okay. We weren't there for typical gambling. We're going to be trying a case there at the end of February. And so we were there to see if uh, they get offended when someone with a Texas accent stands up and talks to them. We did a focus group up there. Um, but, you know, you see these people. Gambling is everywhere. Gambling is Atlantic City, it seems. Yeah, casino after casino after casino. Our hardest problem is trying to find a hotel we can stay in that, that, that has food that doesn't have gambling because they don't have those in Atlantic City. And it's interesting to me because the, the apostles are sitting there and they're saying, okay, well, we got to replace Judas. How are we going to do this? And they say, hey, I got an idea. Let's narrow it down to a couple and then we'll just roll dice. Does that sound like a God? Do you think our pastoral search committee <laughs> is going to narrow it down to four candidates and eh, maybe we don't want to roll dice. Instead, we'll, I'm thinking of a number between 1 and 10. <laughs> you are closest. You're, you're the new pastor. No. The Holy Spirit had not yet come and descended upon the apostles in Acts chapter 1. So they're rolling their dice. Acts chapter 2, the church takes a whole different tact to life when the Holy Spirit comes down. And it's in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, they're all together in one place where there's a sound like the blowing of a violent wind coming from heaven. By the way, the Greek word spirit is also the Greek word for wind or breath. Okay? Um, and, and, and Peter stands up in verse 14. It's Peter with the keys. We don't have a church before this. Peter stands up and says, Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully. We're not drunk. It's nine in the morning. This is what the prophet Joel said when God spoke in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days. They'll prophesy. I'll show wonders in the heaven above. Bomb, bomb, bomb. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you. You know this to be true. And this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. But God raised him up. And this has all been talked about. And David prophesied about it. And I'm here to tell you there are witnesses right and left to this event. This is real history. Jesus Christ was crucified and you're the ones who did it. And he was God, the Son of God. And he's been resurrected. And you know it to be true. And the whole place is a buzz about it. 
You killed God. And the reaction of the people is to fall down on their knees and say, oh no, what do we do now? Because the same spirit that was proclaiming this was convicting them of their sin, as Jesus had said it would. And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. You'll receive yourself the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they did, and they, they were. And it says at the end of Acts 2, 3,000 people were added to the church that day. Verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Okay, that's Peter. He had the keys. He opened the door. Now there's a certain play that Jesus uh, does here on words that we don't want to miss. Um, Peter is a Greek name for Simon. Okay? Peter means rock in a sense. So Jesus says, your name is Peter and on this rock... I will build my church. Well, let's look at the play here for a minute. Peter, Petros, the masculine means a boulder. Okay? It's like a big old separated boulder, a rock. That's what Peter's name means. And then Jesus says, on this rock, I'll build my church. Now, when Jesus says rock, he uses a different word. He uses the word Petra, which is feminine. Peter was not both. He was just masculine. Okay? You are Peter, masculine. You're a boulder. And on this rock or ledge, which is Petra, the feminine, that means, that means a, a ledge or a cliff. It's not a detached rock. It's not a boulder. I will build my church. Peter made a proclamation of faith that Jesus is the Messiah, but he's just a, a, a detached boulder. Jesus is building his church on the whole cliff. So you're Peter. You're a boulder. You're a rock. But on this whole ledge, I'm going to build my church. Now, if you want to know more about this, come back for church history literacy. Plug the old class. Okay, question number four. Oh, here's a softball pitch. Just lob this one up for me. Explain the idea of predestination. Oh, okay. Let's take three minutes and resolve something that's divided the church for, oh, 600 years. I hope uh, everybody's ready for this answer. Well, there are two pillars of thought that we need to understand. Two poles of thought. Here they are. Those are the two poles of thought. That kind of shows up, doesn't it? Okay, that's one, that's the other. We can stand right here in the middle, and we can look over there, or we can look over there, and we'll find scripture to support each one. We're standing right here. Which one do you want to look at first? Anybody? Okay, predestination. All right, we're going to look at predestination. Ephesians, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. But hi, that's, that's, that's child's play. You really want to look at it, go to Romans. Go to Romans chapter 9. Go to Romans chapter 10. How about this? Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election, picking, God picking, 
God's order, God's purpose in picking might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. The mom was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, quote, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So what are we going to say? Is God unjust? Not at all. God says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depends on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. And don't bellyache and say, oh, well then why does God still blame us? Who are you to talk back to God? Doesn't the potter have to, the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? If God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath that he prepared for destruction? And that's, that's pretty tough, isn't it? That's the start of uh, the Presbyterian church. <laughs> We will study this in great depth in church history as we develop the... Okay? But meanwhile, that's, that's, that's a pretty solid column there. All right. Look at that one over there. You know my favorite verse for that column? I mean, there are tons of verses where God just lays it out that it's our responsibility. But my favorite verse is Jesus looking over Jerusalem before he goes. Listen to this verse. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you under my wing like a hen does her brood, but you would not. Now, if we don't have free choice, Jesus is kind of hypocritical there because what he ought to be saying is, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you under my wing like a hen does her brood, but... You know, the Godhead, we got together and we decided not to. We just decided we were going to hate you and you were going to hell. And that's a pretty solid column. So what do we do? Well, let me make a suggestion. We don't stand right here and look at that column or look at that column and think we're seeing the whole picture because we're not. You can have opposite poles that meet above your head and you may not understand why. I can tell you this. If you are God's, you have the assurance that you're God's because he wants you to be. And when there is a time and a place where you need the encouragement of scripture to tell you that God has chosen you, you can find it because he has. But by the same token, every man on earth needs, and woman needs to be aware of the fact that we have a choice to make. We can choose God or not. We don't have the excuse of saying, well, he's already made the pick. What difference does it make? Because that's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that we have it. Now, some people try and merge these together by saying, well... 
you know, you look at Ephesians, it specifically says God predestined based upon His foreknowledge. So God in His wisdom knew who would accept Him and who would not, and He chose those who would accept Him. I wrote a letter to R.C. Spruill on that point one time. I don't know if you've read any R.C. Spruill. R.C. Spruill is real strong looking at this column, and he ain't all that strong looking over here. So I was reading one of his books on this column and decided I needed to help him out. So I wrote him a letter. It's about a three-page letter. He never answered because I never sent it. But so I want to give him. I don't want to like throw rocks at the guy. Um, I would suggest to you that this is a point where this this is where I land on it. And and I've had people come up to me and say, Well, if you really believe that any of predestination is true, then why would anybody go evangelize? I, I, that's a stupid question. Okay, I'm just going to tell you. I think it's a stupid question. You go evangelize because God told you to. Okay? Well, if you're going to heaven anyway, why should you get baptized? God told you to. Well, if you're going to heaven anyway, why shouldn't you lie when it helps you out of a situation? God told you not to. Okay? You do what you're told. We're, we're not Lord. We're servant. He says jump. We say how high. Okay? So I, I don't accept that. I'm going to tell you this. I think every man makes a decision and is able to choose God or refuse God. And nobody has that choice but each human being. You have only one thing you really own. Rebecca said to me this morning, she's our eight-year-old, Daddy, are we going to live in this house forever? And I said, I have no idea. And I thought, well, this is giving great security to my kid. Um, and I'm sensitive to that because Becky and I were um, visiting our son with our other children over in England over Thanksgiving. And um, we saw this TV commercial of this guy at a dinner party. And his cell phone rings. And he picks it up. And he says, <clears throat> hello? It's the babysitter. Oh, that's okay. Just put her on. Hi, sweetie. Yeah. No, no, it's okay, honey. <laughs> no, honey, there are not any monsters in the closet. No, honey, you don't need to be afraid of any monsters in the closet. They're just not there. There's no such thing, honey. Sweetie, listen to me. You don't fear monsters in the closet. What, what you need to be worried about are like burglars breaking in from the outside. <laughs> That's the kind of stuff that happens. <laughs> okay. Um, and I, 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 I tell you this to say that the only thing, and, and I told Rebecca, I thought, you know, I've got to give her some confidence here. I said, Rebecca, I don't know if we live in this house forever. We live here when God wants us to. I said, really, we don't have anything, sweetie. Everything we have is God's, and he just gives it to us to take care of. I was talking to Patricia Harless. She's running for a state rep for this area. And I think she had a good understanding of this. Everything that we've got, if you're a state rep, she's not going there to get her stuff done. She's, she, if she's elected, or some of our other people who are elected officials, Ron Hickman, he's there because he's there to take care of the people who represent him. Okay? That's the way we are for God. What I've got's not mine. It's his. I've been entrusted it, and I'll have it as long as he wants me to. And I said to her, I said, there may come a time where he wants someone else to take care of this house and not us. Doesn't matter, though, because we're going to be doing what God wants us to. Now, that's true 
but it's got a limitation. There is one thing each one of us owns that's not God's, that's ours. Do you know what it is? It's me. It may not be my body, but it's the me inside. And that's the only thing God really wants us to give him. And that's something nobody can decide but, but each one of us. So I believe that. But I also believe when we reach Judgment Day, we're going to find that our names were written down in the book before we were ever born. And I don't understand at all. Okay, question number five. We've got time for a couple more. The Bible says Jesus will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. If Jesus was crucified on a Friday and arose on a Sunday, the math doesn't seem to work. Can you explain? Yeah, see you next week. That's because I was going to do this lesson last week. I thought this morning, oh my goodness, I was going to use that as the teaser for coming back. I can't do that anymore. So, let's do it again. The Bible says Jesus will be in the heart of the earth three days, three nights. If Jesus is crucified on Friday, rose on Sunday, the math doesn't seem to work. Can you explain? Sure. Here we go. The problem. Matthew 12, 40. This is the only passage in the New Testament that says he's going to be in for three nights. Everything else just says three days. It's the only one that says three nights. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is Jesus talking. A sign. Okay. So, here's the problem highlighted. Friday night to Saturday, one. Saturday night to Sunday, two. Three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, but only two nights. Doesn't look like 72 hours. Is Jesus a liar? No. All right, here are some answers. One guy says, one guy, I mean one person, but you know. One answer out there is Jesus died on a Wednesday or a Thursday. You know, there were multiple Sabbaths, and there was a Passover, which was a Sabbath. And so when things are designated by the Sabbath, you can't, you know, and, and Garner Ted Armstrong and his worldwide church builds up this huge theory on it being a Wednesday. And then the other people build up theories on Thursday. And you can kind of read John in a way that indicates it could be a Thursday. But that doesn't really mesh if you read it that way with the other Gospels. And this is just real thorny, and frankly, I don't buy it. Okay. Hebrew idiom. That's not idiot. It's idiom. Okay. I'm a Hebrew idiot. No, I'm a, I, this is a Hebrew idiom. Idiom. Days and nights. They, they, they just, we, we think like rationalistic scientists. Okay? They didn't. That's just an expression. You can find it used in Samuel in the Old Testament. You can find it used in multiple places. Days and nights does not mean like 24-hour time period all the time. Oh, it could. But three days and three nights is just a reference to three days. The nights is just the way they talk. You know, I can say, hey, the football game, it's seven up. That does not mean that the football game is a soda. That's just an expression. I've heard someone say, uh, oh, how was the meeting? Well, let me put it to you this way. If I was told I only had one hour left to live, I'd want to spend it in a meeting just like that. It was that good. No, it was that bad. It seemed to last forever. <laughs> I mean, we, 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 we get away from that. We think so literally for everything we read. And the Bible's literally true, but it still uses expressions. 
Jesus spoke in the vernacular of the day. When Jesus says three days and three nights in the belly of the whale for Jonah, I mean, the point of this story is Jesus was resurrected from the dead and the tomb was empty. And if you think for a moment that we could go there on Sunday and say, the tomb is empty. Wow, he's been resurrected from the dead. Well, at least we know he's not the son of God because if he had been, that would have happened tomorrow. <laughs> no, that's just an expression in Hebrew. Three days and three nights. That just means three days, okay? And it doesn't mean three full days. So you got Friday, the day he's crucified. You got Saturday and you got Sunday when he's resurrected. Don't think he's a Messiah because he missed a night. Or he's not a Messiah because he missed a night. He's not. Um, we're out of time, but I can throw this up there real quick. Uh, I got an extra email from Steve said, uh, when did we get our Bible verses? When was it divided up into Bible verses? And the answer is, in the Old Testament, different sections happened over time. And we've actually lost knowledge of it. We don't know when exactly the verses were uh, uh, put in. New Testament, we got it. Robert Estienne, 1551, putting the New Testament into Greek. Bam! It had already been divided up into chapters about 300 years earlier. He was the one who added the verses, and we've kept it in our English Bibles. Uh, the chapters were done by a guy named Stephen Langdon or something like that. Langston or Langdon is in 1220 to 1240 in that range. Uh, we can probably cover that in church history. Points for home. The Bible is rich for study. You have honored me greatly by letting me teach this class. And I thank you from the depths of my heart. Number two, we've got rich history for Bible study to see how people have studied the Bible for the last 2,000 years in the church. And that's going to be fun. Number three, I hope you have a wonderful Christmas. I hope Jesus is alive and well in your heart and in your home and in your families. If you've got disconnect with family, I hope you make it through this with joy in your heart. Um, and number four, have a great new year. I look forward to seeing you. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, thank you so much for the honor of teaching this class. It's been one of the most fun and, and exciting things I've ever been blessed to do by you in my life. I thank you for each person here, and I pray that you'll soften their hearts, that you'll clean out their ears, and that you'll bring to us rich fullness of the beauty you have for us each day. I pray you'll bring us back together to study church history, that you'll bless that study and bring historical truth to what you've done. Connect for us the dots, Lord, from your death and resurrection to our life today in a very clear fashion that makes great sense to us and restores an even deeper faith and abiding love of who you are. Be with my family, friends, church brothers and sisters here for this Christmas season. Draw us closer to your heart. In Jesus we pray, amen. Thank you all so much.